It's a totally different mindset for folks to wrap their head around. And I think the transition is scary, but if you get to the other side, the results in terms of business growth and outcomes can be pretty amazing. You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. And I'm Yaniv. And today, we're delighted to welcome Kyle Poyar onto the Startup Podcast. Kyle's an operating partner at OpenView Ventures and has done a huge amount to spread the gospel of product-led growth through his appearances in many shows and podcasts. His newsletter, Growth Unhinged, reaches many thousands of readers and provides deep insights for anybody who wants to learn about new ways to grow their SaaS business. Kyle, welcome to the Startup Podcast. Let's start at the beginning. What exactly is product-led growth? <laughs> Loaded question. I'll start with the simplest answer there. Product-led growth is about using your products to generate revenue for your business. So this could mean your product is front and center in how you acquire, convert, and expand your users. It's a dimmer switch rather than an on or off switch. So in my opinion, just about any business can apply elements of product-led growth to make their go-to-market strategy more efficient, deliver more to customers, and ultimately unlock faster growth at scale. With that in mind, there are a set of principles that we see in the best performing PLG companies. These great companies build products for end users and not just executive buyers. They make it really easy to use these products and deliver value before hitting users with a paywall. They also make their products discoverable in that user's context. So they're discovered by users rather than you know presented or sold by a sales team. And then they can drive growth through product data, product usage, virality, community loops. Essentially, the product becomes one of the most important marketing channels for the business. So for me, the distinction with product-led growth is primarily about value, and in particular, where the value fits in to the overall sales cycle. So in a traditional sales cycle, you start with the white papers, with the sales call, with the smell of jet fuel, and Finally, you sign, install, integrate, and only at the end of that cycle is the value of the product delivered and unlocked. So you promise, you promise, you promise, you promise, and only then do you deliver on that promise. That's a lot of promising. And so no wonder there's such a huge investment in traditional sales cycles in things like relationship building, because for those promises to be credible, you need to have trust. And trust is bought expensively through that traditional sales cycle. And it takes a long time. PLG turns this on its head. It's about delivering the value upfront with minimal friction. Like Slack, you can just sign up and start using it. You're getting that value straight away. So you deliver value first. And then when you want even more value, then we can upsell. And the value's already been delivered. The trust has already been established. So even when you have a traditional sales function, the place where they fit into the cycle makes things a lot easier. And in a sense, I see this as part of a longer tradition. There's the sort of B2C growth marketing. I know they don't like the term, but growth hacking. We had Casey Winters on the show a few episodes ago to talk about that. But we can go back even further in time to grocery shopping. So grocery stores used to require you to make your orders to a clerk. You'd say, I want this thing, and they go off and get it and bring it back to you. Then the first modern supermarket 
believe it or not, was called Piggly Wiggly. You can look it up. And they realized you could get more sales by allowing customers to browse the aisles, to look, to touch. And then even more recently, supermarkets like Costco and, and most modern supermarkets really started giving out free samples, creating attractive displays, constantly bringing people closer to the value so people can see, touch, taste, enjoy. And then the sale is so much easier to make. It's a really powerful mechanism. Are you looking for a job? <laughs> You'd be a great PLG <laughs> evangelist. I love it. But Kyle, I have an amazing sales team. They're really incredible. They do a great job and they're telling me, right, my product is way too complicated, way too sophisticated to sell with this kind of self-serve model. They need to get involved. They need to press palms. They need to burn jet fuel. They need to sign big contracts. This is impossible for what I do. Help me understand, Carl, how can I convince my sales team to allow us to do this product-led growth fancy <laughs> nonsense? Well, it's a great question. And I mean, you might be a long ways off from being able to do product-led growth. Your product might not be built for self-service discovery, self-service value realization, self-serve purchasing. And if you try to go too far, too fast, that could actually really ruin your business. And so I think about taking incremental steps along the way to think about where's their friction in that customer experience and how can you leverage product-led growth techniques to drive less friction and greater velocity in your sales motion. So like if you're a sales-led company with that model that you described, if you want to double revenue next year, you've got a double headcount and you probably have to do so now because it's going to take you three to six months to find sellers, three to six months to get them productive. Your deal cycles are going to take another six months. And actually, if you've not already started hiring now, you're never going to double your revenue by next year. And it's just, it's a slog. It's really challenging. And you see the average technology company see slower growth at scale. Product-led companies can actually see faster revenue growth at scale and can sometimes be even profitable while they do that. The thing to also look out for is what's the risk of your competitor leapfrogging you with this other model? That's a potentially catastrophic risk if you're not open to a different mindset. Yeah, absolutely. We say on a regular basis on this show that startups are about scale. And you just talked about that a little bit there. It's about getting to scale as fast as possible. But part of the reason that these companies feel like their products are too complicated to adopt is because they are too complicated to adopt. And they're actually not products, they're technologies. And so these companies often end up in this pattern that we call technology-backed services companies, right? Where they're actually selling some tech and a whole bunch of services. Let us customize and configure and deploy this stuff for you. And in fact, they're very protective of those services, right? I've actually had founders say to me, well, we can't make this easier to use because then it'll become less valuable and our deal sizes will shrink because it'll seem so easy. There's actually a, a fundamental mind shift that needs to happen. If your sales team, if your company, if your technology appears too complicated to sell, and that is you need to shift your focus to creating polished, delightful, self-serve products so you can achieve that holy grail of startup success, which is scale. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at the average product-led company that's really bought into PLG, the initial deal size is small, frankly. And so I could see an enterprise company say, well, this is going to cause cannibalization. But it's actually a long-term strategy. You land with an individual, a team, a department, normally for a narrow use case where folks start to see value and make the initial purchase quickly. And then there's often an organic expansion that happens through word of mouth, through product virality. 
And then sales can come in or customer success can come in and turn that into a much bigger deal later on. But it's with a very fast sales cycle, extremely high win rate. And, you know, ideally you're able to do that with thousands, if not millions of accounts. And so you're in a position to scale into larger deals in just a really unique place that's hard for these traditional tech enabled services companies to replicate. Yeah. Hearing you say all that, it makes me think of the innovator's dilemma of Professor Christensen's theory of disruption, which is really about saying, if you try to protect your fat margins and your big sales cycle from competitors, then eventually you will find competitors who come in and take those lower value tiers and then squeeze you up and up and up and up. I used to work at IBM for a brief period, and I think they're a classic example of a tech company that has been disrupted and is now completely isolated to massive enterprises because of their sales cycle as much as anything else, because of the complexity of using their product. You know, if we talk about the sort of classic examples of product-led growth, if you think about Atlassian, about Slack, Gmail, you think about the sometimes called shadow IT. The idea here is that you can create these companies, and I think those are some of the classic PLG companies. I'd love to hear more examples from you where what they are doing is saying, you know what, we're going to remove all the friction, all the sales cycle from using this thing. You can just sign up and start using it, often without even paying. And basically, you start off by getting small companies who don't have much money, small parts of bigger companies who may not have the budget authority and so on. But after a while, you become entrenched, you add more features. At that point, even if you do have a sales team, the ground is well and truly tilled and fertilized, and you are ready to have that sales conversation with clear examples of the value that you're already providing. And so if you're a big company and you want to avoid PLG because of the margin erosion or because of the fact that the deal size becomes very small at first, then you are simply setting yourself up for a long-term disruption. I think you said it well. It's a totally different mindset for folks to wrap their head around. And I think the transition is scary. But if you get to the other side, the results in terms of business growth and outcomes can be pretty amazing. If you add to examples, I'd also throw in Canva, Airtable, Sigma, Calendly in our portfolio. I believe it's about 60% of the latest Cloud 100 companies we consider to be pretty bought into product-led growth strategies. It's increasingly becoming the norm and the way to build a large and enduring business. I actually think there are a few other tailwinds that have been driving this over the course of years and decades, which is I think companies like Apple have spoiled us in terms of teaching us what great products look like. And the bar for what a great product is has risen and people are looking for great products to use in their day-to-day life instead of dealing with the clunky piece of crap that IT bought. And so people are gravitating towards these beautiful, almost single purpose, delightfully easy to use products. I think also Clue Train Manifesto predicted this idea that markets are becoming conversations. It started off with blogging and now the conversation has kicked into high gear with Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and so on. And so people want to hear from each other about what products work well versus being told by a sales guy, you know, you shall use this and all about this kind of rarefied backroom deals. The internet makes it multiplayer built in, right? So people can start to invite each other to products and create these implicit or organic networks start to spring up. Whereas if you had software you had to install on your PC, that was just not going to happen, right? And then you add on top of that, historically, that's been really easy, thanks to Facebook and what have you, to find and target users with ads and grow organically from the bottom up. And now 
post-COVID, everyone's working remotely and we're pushing accountability to the edges. And so now you need to make your own choices about your own tools and be using your own devices. And therefore you want stuff on your devices that you like. You add everything you said, plus all of this other stuff. And it's just like all of these tailwinds that mean the best products win and the products that are designed for individuals instead of IT departments are the products that get adopted and used. Yeah, I think those are spot on. One other tailwind that we should call out is like, real-time interconnectivity, right? So you can sign up for products leveraging your Google credentials, right? And just automatically create an account. If you're already using Gmail and you connect through Google, you can provide access to Calendly, right? With Google Calendar. So automatically start to see value and the setup process becomes really minimal. And so you see more and more software companies building on top of the layer one technology ecosystem. And now that that kind of first layer is already cloud-based, we can just build on top of that with really minimal friction and also empowering that user to not have to go to IT for a complex integration to actually have a product fit into their workflow. It's all API-based. It's all extensible, low-code, no-code. And from a technology perspective, there's been a lot of enablement that allows us to be in this position today. And it's funny because one of my specialties is developer platforms and APIs, and I hadn't thought about it in that way for a while. The API ecosystem, the API model has made it possible for us to build bridges between these tools in really lightweight ways that don't require ITs. You're right, that's an incredibly good point, and it is a very strong tailwind, I think. The way I like to think about it is the tailwind is the cloud, which is so ubiquitous now that we've sort of stopped talking about it, right? It's the fact that applications are delivered over the internet. So all of that friction that users used to have that stopped them from being able to make their own choices, that IT made those choices, now users are fully empowered. It is so easy to try new software. And fundamentally, in my view, the technological chip there is to these hosted software to the cloud. And I think that's made a huge difference. An example that I think is illustrative of why we're moving towards this trend. HubSpot started out as inbound marketing software, and they initially relied on gated white papers, gated eBooks, tons and tons of content, trying to identify marketing qualified leads from folks who downloaded the content, calling on those folks with a sales team, and then converting them through a traditional sales process. And then HubSpot's co-founder and CEO at the time, Brian Halligan, realized that that wasn't how HubSpot bought products themselves. Their purchases often started as small projects. You know, a sales rep started adopting something. The marketing team was using X. Engineers loved Y. And then all of a sudden, it would end up on the CFO's desk of like, we're using this. We're seeing a ton of value. We need to buy it. And that is when I think the aha moment happened for them that you need to actually deliver value for these users and then put them to work for you. And that's a kind of really disruptive way to stand out from the competition and build a great business. Why now? It's a few things. B2C companies have been doing this for a while and B2B companies are kind of now playing catch up and following what they've learned. But B2B users are really just consumers at work. And so they're demanding the same quality of software experience that they have in their personal lives. Like they want to bring that into their company. And some products, if you look at like a Canva or a Calendly, for example, you might even be using them in your personal life. And then you decide to bring them into a business context. Grammarly is a great example of that too. Users, especially with the COVID pandemic, people working from home, ubiquitous connectivity, people want to try products on their own time and are often empowered to as part of their job. And even when 
big companies might try to block shadow IT, you know, corporate IT try to block people from using iPhones for work. Like that didn't work out very well. The employees have a lot of power in technology decision-making that power shifted from that CIO down to the end user. We've gotten just a lot better at understanding these business models and how a PLG business works. And so like some of the early companies like Evernote weren't that successful with a model, right? Only generated a certain amount of revenue, you know, were a modest success, but certainly not a standout company. I think we've realized that to make PLG businesses work well, you have to deliver value really quickly, have a reason for users to convert, and you want to go from that individual user to that team and to a bigger deal as quickly as possible. So PLG doesn't mean like no salespeople, doesn't mean not selling bigger deals. It means starting small, proving value, and then growing with your customers. Giving your employees equity is awesome, but managing that equity scheme yourself, not awesome. Cake Equity makes it easy to create and manage employee equity schemes for your global team. Check them out at cakeequity.com. So Kyle, I'd love to switch the conversation to some examples of classic PLG strategies. Of course, people think of the free trial and the freemium, but I know there's so much more to it and the thinking has become more subtle and nuanced over the years. Well, freemium and free trial are still part of it. The goal in general in PLG is to deliver value before you're hitting folks with a paywall. And so you've really got to think about how can you deliver value quickly, but how can you also design the right pricing model that you give folks enough time to experience the product, reach their aha moment, make it kind of sticky in their workflow, but then not so much that there's never a reason to convert in the first place. I think another trap that folks have fallen into with models like freemium is that the free product actually is so limited because people are very weary about causing cannibalization with what they charge for or sales is constantly demanding cuts to the free experience so they can hit their number in a certain quarter. Freemium often ends up so diluted that you're not actually able to deliver a real value prop for the kind of customer you want to attract. And it kind of dies from a depth of a thousand cuts. So with that in mind, a few emerging strategies that are still new that I've been following closely. One is the reverse trial. A reverse trial is just you land folks in a 30-day trial of your premium product and then you downgrade them to a free forever product afterwards. And what I love about that is it allows you to put your best foot forward with new users and show them really all that your product can do out of the gate. And so they start to realize there are things that they didn't even expect in the product, but once they've used it, it's really hard to take it away from them, right? Like loss aversion is a real thing. In behavioral economics, we know loss aversion is three times more powerful versus giving something to someone that has not had access to it before. The other thing is that because you have that time when something goes away, there's a compelling event that says, hey, now is the time to convert. Like, so it drives urgency. It drives a faster time to purchase. And then instead of a traditional trial where you just are kicked out, that user is lost once you have hit the trial expiration date, potentially in a reverse trial, you can keep engaging them with product usage and you can get multiple bites of the apple later. So you can even offer, hey, why don't you extend your trial? Or why don't you keep using the product? And then we'll have usage paywalls that you have reason to upgrade later. And you can continue to nurture them through the path of converting. So I love reverse trials. It's a model Airtable uses. Another model I've been following 
is this idea of ungated products, which is kind of fascinating. So if you think about PLG as removing friction and just letting people try something out before they buy it, show value. Putting in an email and like creating an account, potentially adding a phone number all to get access to a product, like that's actual friction too, right? And so products like Eraser, which is a virtual whiteboard for engineering teams, kind of similar to a Miro, but with a more targeted use case, they have an ungated product where you can just start using the product. No questions asked, no forms required. You can even collaborate and share it with peers and engineers are especially hesitant to sign up for things. But once you've built something, you probably want to save it, right? And so to save something, that's when you create an account. And what this does is it lowers the barrier to get people to try the product. And then it means that anyone that's actually an account is highly qualified from a product usage perspective. So you don't get a whole lot of noise. I find that fascinating. I don't know if it'll ever get to the point of where we are with freemium and free trial, But that's a strategy that I'm watching closely. You've done an excellent job of describing some of these more advanced new ideas for techniques. I think it's worth, and this might be very rudimentary for a large part of the audience, but I think it's worth really quickly defining a couple of the early ideas that we dismissed as kind of standard and practical and well-known. You mentioned free trial. I think that one's pretty obvious, right? You give it a try for a little while for free and then you have to pay. Freemium, I think is well understood or popularly understood, but just to explain it very quickly, it's really another more fancy word for loss leader, right? It's I give you a free subscription tier that is a fairly simple version of the product. And the hope is that you will at some point want to upgrade to one of the paid tiers. And then you also mentioned the aha moment. Again, might be self-explanatory, but it's the moment where the user goes, holy crap, this thing is awesome. I need this in my life. You know, this whole thing of product-led growth is predicated on getting the user to that holy shit moment as fast as possible. You want to give people a full, valuable product experience and not irritate them into upgrading. It's more about saying, okay, we're giving you a limited experience. If you want to get even more value, that's the point at which you need to pay. And I think personally, one of my favorite versions of this is kind of the multiplayer mode where you have tools. And I think Canva is a great example where you get a huge amount of functionality that is unlocked and free forever, but their big ungating, their their freemium gate is to sharing, to having a full team experience where you can have collaborative editing well, then you have to pay for that. And so you don't feel like the version you're using is, is crippled in any way. It's actually a great product. You can use it forever. But if you want even more, then that's when you pay for it. Yeah. And once you've put in all of that sweat equity to build something really great, <laughs> it's like such a no-brainer to like, hey, we should share it within the same platform and you can add comments and we can collaborate on a design. Like you've delivered value, but then there's still a good reason that feels natural for the user to buy more. I like to live on the edge and think about creative strategies that, that are more disruptive. One other strategy I will call out this idea of cannibalizing your complement. So if you have a core product and there's something else that someone needs to adopt in order to see value in your core product, you can actually offer that for free as like a sidecar product as a lead gen for your paid product. And so like a MailChimp, for example, makes money from email marketing and email marketing automation. But in order to start email marketing as a business, you probably need a website, probably need to start generating an email list, probably need a domain. And so during COVID, they launched a free website builder product. That's an entire business line for some of their competitors. But they launched a free website builder product, an ability to get a domain for free for 12 months to make it really, really easy to do the thing that's 
highly complementary to what they charge for. It's a very similar example to Canva. Make it really easy to design the thing but then charge for that higher value functionality, that collaboration. So we've been talking about a lot of these high-level principles, the concepts of product-led growth and why it's super powerful. I think this show is at its best when we try to get super practical about, okay, given this idea, given this new principle, this philosophy, this way of thinking from Silicon Valley or from the US, what are some pragmatic and practical advice for listeners to actually start to rotate their business over to product-led growth? And what landmines should the audience be looking out for as they try to make this transition? Yeah, I guess the first thing is get really good visibility into how people use the product, right? So there's a lot of great third-party tooling, but you can also build some of this tracking yourself. What is an aha moment in your product that indicates that you've delivered on the promise in the first place? What is retention like among your users? So how many folks keep coming back month after month? And what features do people use that correlate with downstream outcomes of the business that are really positive? So like if someone uses features A, B, and C, they never churn or they do X, Y, Z, they expand to their entire team. So if you start with that visibility, that data is really fundamental to anything else you're going to do in product like growth. Another thing I think about CAC payback, and that's essentially how long does it take to pay off the cost of acquiring a new customer? So if it costs you $100 between sales and marketing to acquire a customer, and that customer pays you $100 over the course of a year, you've paid off your customer acquisition in a year. If you can pay off your customer acquisition costs faster, that's great. It allows you to, to scale even more quickly. If you start to lead beyond that, you start to have to burn quite a bit of money to fuel that acquisition. And we've normally thought about customer acquisition costs as marketing and sales costs. But the reality is products can be part of your marketing. And so can you think about your marketing and sales budget and think about where you're spending money and what might actually be a better bet or an experiment to run? that place your product as marketing. So those would be a couple of starting points. A final thing I would just encourage folks is in order to make a product like growth strategy work, you have to get close to the user, understand their specific pain points, like what draws them to a product. And it's really different for that user than for the executive buyer, right? So if you're a sales leader, you care about getting visibility into the pipeline of your team to know, are you going to hit your number? And how do you make sure you're on track to hit that collective number? If you're a rep, you care about like, I hate the back and forth of scheduling meetings. So you turn to a product like Calendly in our portfolio, or you go, hey, I hate taking all of my notes from Evernote and putting them into Salesforce at the end of the week. That's really painful. And you might want to try a tool like Dooley that does live note taking and syncs that to Salesforce, right? Think in terms of the user and the user specific pain and how they discover products in your space. And I think that could be a lock for ways to start to incorporate elements of product-led growth into your business. I think a lot of our listeners are founders or operators at relatively early stage startups. So let's imagine you're still in that pre-product market fit trying to create your product and you think PLG is a great model for you. What, what are some of the advice and maybe some of the pitfalls that specifically apply not to the let's incorporate some PLG into what we already have, but Let's go PLG from the beginning. What does that look like? Well, yeah, you'll have design partners, right? Or beta folks that you're working with and getting regular product feedback from, which is awesome. I would start to do things like document how many steps it takes and how much time it takes for them to see value in the product and what's manual. Where do they actually need your help and can't do something self-serve? And start to think about, hey, where are the ways to bring that amount of work and time 
to as close to zero as possible. And if you go, hey, this is really never going to work for XYZ reasons. My users don't actually own the data. They need to get help from engineering or there's a wide variety of things that could be blockers. If it's really impossible task, then probably PLG is not a great starting point. And you should just focus on a core kind of traditional sales led approach. But if you start having pretty good visibility into that PLG path, I lean into it and start to open up your design partner program to more folks. See how far they can get and what percentage of them are successful without that onboarding specialist from your team. And that can be really eye-opening and also humbling because you'll find that a lot of folks really struggle on things that you might have thought are basic. I think that it's a great blessing, the fact that you can really learn with and work with your users, because once you go live in GA with these products, you want that product onboarding and time to value to be nailed as great as possible so that you're really in a position to scale and turn your users into huge fans. I think all of this is predicated on something we've touched on a number of episodes, which is the idea that you need to understand who your customer is really well and what problem you're solving. You'd need to narrowly define that kind of in an embarrassingly thin target market and target problem because you can't get to product-led growth unless your product is great and your onboarding funnels and your time to the aha moment is great. And the only way to do that is to focus, to focus and to polish and to invest in those journeys and in that product. And you can't do that if you're running around saying yes to every customer you encounter opportunistically, trying to just bring that revenue in at all costs. It really does require that fundamental mind shift to, in the early stage, yes, you need to talk to a lot of customers, you need to try to find that product market fit, but that can't be confused with saying yes to everything for everyone at all times and at all costs. And you need to find that niche and find that opportunity to focus so that you can build a product worthy of people fall in love with it and then convert. I mean, I do think that's a great call out and I'm all for focus. And it's also impossible to figure out what to build if you're getting conflicting feedback and you don't have a sense of prioritization across segments of the market. That said, I think that fascinating thing with PLG companies is the idea to enable customization or personalization at scale so that you actually learn from your users the best use cases and almost turn those into templates that other folks can learn from, right? So if you're a virtual whiteboarding software, that virtual whiteboard could be used to create thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of things. And so could you actually turn some of the things that your users create with it, especially your best users, and turn those into templates that make it really easy for that next user to start instead of from a blank canvas where they have to come up with this themselves, start from something that's already worked for someone else and then edit around it. And that's, I think, a great insight about the safety culture model. I'm a huge fan of you know safety culture as an Australian company. Not a whole lot of folks have built software products with a PLG mindset for blue collar audiences, especially not for folks in spaces like construction. And safety culture, I think, came to the realization that there's thousands and thousands of potential safety checklists that people need to fill out and they need to fill them out regularly. So they have a really simple product. But there's an endless variety of ways that folks might want to use that product. And that's actually okay because they can turn those into checklist templates. Folks can start off from that point and then actually edit from there. And that's a great way of getting top of funnel acquisition because people are going to search for those kinds of templates around the jobs they're trying to do. And then they're going to see value quickly because 
they're starting off with with a template. So Kyle, just one last question before we wrap up. And this is actually from Adam, one of our fans who requested having you on the podcast. He was talking about the fundraising aspect of being a PLG startup, where the metrics might be a bit different, right? When you're raising seed, series A, and you are doing these things that, as we've been discussing, are a bit of a slower burn, where you can't just land these big 100K deals straight up. You are instead slowly infiltrating multiple organizations with free trials or with freemium or with very small tickets. And in fact, there's a company I'm investing in. It's actually somewhat of a competitor to Calendly. So Reclaim AI, they actually only introduced pricing at all after 18 months of PLG. Until then, it was completely free. And so I think the thing here is if you compare your enterprise SaaS at that earlier stage, and you're looking at revenue numbers with a PLG model compared to a sales-led model, you might come out not looking very good. And so if you want to follow PLG and then still have a good way of growing through venture capital, what are the metrics you should be focusing on? How do you tell the story in a way that gets the investment that you need to continue to grow? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I think that's something that honestly, there's still some education work that needs to happen, not just with the founder community, but with the VC community, because many VCs are not comfortable with how PLG companies look in the early stages and the differences. I think the first thing I think about is at Series A, for example, you're trying to prove out that there's product market fit and that your product is in a position where you're ready to scale, scale your team, scale your customer base. And historically, product market fit for an enterprise-focused company, if you're selling 100K deals, you might actually be able to hit a million ARR with 10 customers, but those customers might have pretty different ways of using the product. They might not all plan to renew. It'll take you know a year, maybe multiple years before they go to a renewal cycle. It's actually really hard to tell that the product market fit is there until there's actually a good amount of revenue traction. The great thing about PLG companies is you can tell from the data that you're consistently attracting users, especially from organic sources. Those users see value pretty quickly, ideally on a self-serve basis. And then you're ideally starting to see signals of conversion and initial expansion within those users. And that can happen at pretty low revenue numbers because there's a large enough base of users and there's enough early signals that the business model is actually becoming like coin-operated and will play out if you give it enough time. And so investors, I think that are forward thinking, start to say, hey, well, actually more like 500K ARR is more normal for a PLG company at Series A and a million plus is a great thing. And you look at things like usage retention or what percentage of the folks who sign up for the product stick around at a cohort basis in month two, month three, month four, month five, and so on, regardless of whether they choose to pay, you're gonna see pretty high drop-off rates, pretty high usage-related churn but ideally, there's a smile curve where that flattens out and your loyal users stick around and they advocate for the product. They become part of your community. They're raving fans. And then we tend to see high net dollar retention. So a dollar in revenue that you get in year one turns into $1.50, $2, and so on in future years. And that's because you're able to prove out that this land and expand thesis is actually working. The good thing is because a lot of your customers are buying month to month, putting the product down on a credit card, you should be able to get these signals relatively quickly in a PLG business. It's a different mindset, but to me, actually, if I compare apples to apples, I think that a VC should be able to get stronger conviction in a PLG company at significantly less revenue scale 
than a traditional business. Kyle, thank you so much for your awesome insights on this. I really think product-led growth is one of the most fundamental concepts, techniques, and tactics for high-growth startups that there is. And it's often fundamentally misunderstood or underinvested in or distracted or derailed by other processes and other focus areas. And so it's been really important for our audience to hear from someone like you about how you think about it and how you invest in it. Thank you for joining us on the show. Yeah, glad to hear it. Thanks for having me on, Chris. And you know, is there anything you'd like to point the audience to in terms of your content, your blog, your your own stuff? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Put out content regularly on LinkedIn. Folks can follow me there. I accept all connection requests. And then I write a newsletter. I think every VC has a Substack or plans to have a Substack. I'm no exception. Mine's called Growth Unhinged. And then just go deeper around like how to do PLG, the data around it, case studies from operators that are living it. And so for folks that want to go deeper, that's a great resource. I also want to personally thank you for Calendly. That one tool has probably changed my entire life and made my advisory business possible. So it's a beautiful example of focus of product-led growth and of a simple tool that solves a real problem. They're, I think, one of our favorite portfolio companies. And it's an amazing founder story too. Awesome. We'll have to dig into that in the next time you join us on the show. Awesome. You know, Yanev, as Carl was talking, it really reminded me of our episode about pay it forward because that idea that you give generously of your time to people that you don't necessarily have a relationship with, with the expectation that over time you accrue this goodwill, that you're building the community and that your reputation starts to precede you and people get a sense of your generosity. What we're actually doing with pay it forward is putting the value up front the same way you do with product-led growth, right? You're putting your value up front to people who you don't owe anything, but you're giving them some of your time, your advice, your efforts with the hope, maybe not the expectation, but the hope that that might come back around to you. But in the broader sense, the ecosystem is better for it. It's actually a really brilliant insight. I think you've connected two things that on the surface don't seem very similar, but it works for a similar reason, which is that it doesn't cost you much to give that value. Why wouldn't you when the marginal cost is low? I talked about the fact that a lot of the reason that sales teams need to get corporate boxes at sporting venues and play golf and fancy dinners and all that is to build the trust, build the relationship using these social cues as a substitute for simply providing the value. So it is so much easier and better and ultimately also just a nicer thing to do instead of doing all of this signaling to earn trust is just to earn trust directly by being valuable, by being useful, by being thoughtful and kind. I think it's a really great point. It's funny how much social cruft we've added onto things and all of this artifice is kind of being washed away from the internet generation, right? It's just like, just be honest, authentic, transparent and get the crap out of my way. And I think that culture, that attitude is the new standard. We're also talking about the casualization of work more broadly, right? People showing up in jeans and a t-shirt instead of all of this artifice around ties and suits and what have you. And that's especially true now as we're all working from home, you see people's kids in the background, you see their dogs. I really like that about the modern era and I hope it continues. Agreed, hope for the future. So Chris, product-led growth, I know is something that you advise quite a lot of companies on. So if anyone listening to this would like to work with you and get custom advice on product-led growth or anything else to do with their startups, how do they connect? Yeah, so I've carved out some time to work with startups on all of these subjects. So you can visit chrissard.com slash advisory to learn more about what I do and how I do it. And I'd love to hear about what you're working on. Brilliant. We'd also love if you connected with us on all the social media. I'm at Chris Saad on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and whatever else you can find me on. How about you, Yadev? 
I'm at Y Bernstein. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I enjoy shit posting on Twitter. I still need more followers there, so I'd love it if you could give me a follow. Different sort of content on each platform. Yeah, absolutely. And don't forget to subscribe and share the startup podcast with your friends and fellow founders. It helps the show grow, puts a smile on your never nice face, and ultimately gives us a little bit of motivation to keep recording these things. It takes a bit of work, and we really appreciate it very much. Okay, catch you in the next one. Catch you next time.